This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Although I have passed my 96th birthday, I still recall most vividly our preparations and intensive training in 1914. Then came Gallipoli. The 25th of April 1915 saw the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps land on a tiny exposed beach, miles from its destination, under Turkish fire from the overlooking hills. War between Britain and Germany was underway, and New Zealand had leapt to the mother country's aid. Our landing on the beach of that most inhospitable and rugged country, later to be named Anzac Cove, was successful. But conditions encountered there were appalling and unbelievable. Rugged and most difficult country to fight in, shortage of drinking water, Poor and restricted food supplies were problems difficult to overcome. But we did manage, somehow, and fought many bloody battles while there. There was the cramping grimness, the starvation for good food, the thirst, the lack of rest and sleep, the life-ridden holes into which men crawled and lived, the flies, the unwashed clothes became rags, the stench of corruption. War was outnumbered, outarmed, woefully short of shells and bombs, medical supplies. Their bodies riddled by the immobility of their fouled earth. Once they won a place, they stayed there. The Turk never shifted them. There was no spot immune from rifle or shell fire. General Bird would staff officer, an Australian, was killed sleeping alongside his chief. We had to make our own bombs out of jam tins. They were still in use during the August push. Can see my gallant bombers now on the apex while under fire lighting the fuses of the bombs with wooden matches. We looted the transports of their mirrors to make periscopes. The bathing was perfect. Warm, buoyant, clear sea, but if more than half a dozen went in at one time, the bursting of shrapnel would sweep the spot. I think our sick rays would have been greatly reduced if bathing had been less dangerous. By the end of the war five years later, 18,000 New Zealanders had lost their lives. One in 12 of all men between 19 and 45, while one in five of that age group was wounded. The patriotic young colony needed to make something of the bloodshed. Tradition required each community to honour its dead. The war memorial tradition sort of really grew out of British imperialism. I mean, New Zealand liked to think of itself as a kind of loyal member of the empire that, you know, had made a place in the world stage by really contributing something to that larger empire. And um, the memorials were a way of, of you know, promulgating that message and... and um, in that sense, they were an extension of imperial propaganda. Victoria University historian Dr. Jock Phillips. The you know dominant images of the First World War memorials are 
know, heroic images. I mean, the words on them talk about the glorious dead. And one quite common phrase is the deathless dead. In other words, the idea that the people who died in war have gone to heaven and their name will live forevermore. Uh, which when you see the conditions of many of the war memorials, which is sort of cracking and crumbling, is a little bit ironic. So that you know, one um, understands partly from the war memorials the efforts of people in the years immediately after the First World War to make something heroic of the day. But when you look at them today, I mean, the thing that really hits you is simply the um, the numbers of names on these on these memorials. I mean, you go to a quite small community. It's a place like uh, Lawrence down in central Otago, and there's about 140 names on on uh, the memorial. And you suddenly realise how devastating that experience was for people, and why they felt that um, you know, they had to put up some kind of permanent tribute to them. For soldiers who'd returned without their mates, it was the Anzac Day parade that was significant. Though over time, this has changed. Brigadier Les Hunt. The young children are not told about it in their homes, but they are told about it by their teachers because Anzac Day is a day that is commemorated in and by school. That is why the only thing we have to reach the children, I feel, parents, their parents today have never been in war and they don't appear to care. Lest we forget. They don't have to forget because they never were aware of war of any kind concerning them. But while some schools and groups such as Girl Guides show interest in Anzac Day, it's not part of the school history syllabus. Education Department History Officer David Wood. I'm sorry to say that there is no, in fact, here coverage of World War I as a topic in school certificate, um, either from a European or, a, uh, or, f- or from a New Zealand viewpoint. Um, there is a topic called the origins of World War II. In sixth form, however, uh, at the old university entrance level, which is now called sixth form certificate, uh, of course, there is a very popular topic called the origins of World War I, and I would have to say that this is invariably treated from a European perspective. Uh, New Zealanders had very little influence in the events that led up to that war, uh, in the reasons for it, and that's really what the topic is, is concerned with, not the actual war itself. While the syllabus is changing to include such topics as New Zealand's search for identity, David Wood says for a long time people wanted to forget about war. The war years itself are fairly fresh in the minds of many New Zealanders. It's only fairly recently that we can look with some degree of impartiality and see the perspective, have a perspective in which to look at the war years. There is an enormous amount of detail, of course, in war. Uh, And uh, in some senses, knowing the details, the various battles and what took place uh, probably hasn't been seen to be as important as knowing why a war has taken place or what the effects that the war has had on international relationships. And then finally, there are some, of course, uh, when I say finally, another view at least, is is that uh, war may be not a sensible area for study for children. 
there are some who would prefer uh, perhaps to study um, areas which build up relationships and uh, maybe don't uh, give any attempt to glorify the process uh, of war and uh, encourage war games. A new program that's about to be brought into New Zealand schools is Peace Studies. It's a result of the 1986 International Year for Peace and ties in with our United Nations commitments to teach peace to children. But it's been a long time coming, according to Special Projects Coordinator Ian Bassett. Further back still in 1958, uh, we signed the International Declaration of uh, the Rights of the Child, which uh, again um, urged all uh, signatories to uh, take up the... uh, the recommendations relating to that, and one of them was that the child shall be brought up in a spirit of understanding, tolerance, friendship amongst peoples, peace and universal brotherhood. So uh, we have over the years um, uh, undertaken uh, on an international basis to develop peace studies programs, um, but it's only recently and in, in since uh, last year that we've actually begun a specific initiative to encourage schools to take this up. Ian Bassett says the main thrust of peace studies is conflict resolution, but that doesn't mean Anzac Day will be forgotten. There is a, a slight dilemma for schools in treating Anzac Day. Uh, they have to recognise the, the, the sacrifice and, and the memory of those men who, who sacri- and women who sacrificed their lives. But over and above that, they need also to recognise the reality of Anzac, it's its futile nature, the 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 incredible muddle that surrounded it, uh, and the fact that uh, within it nothing really changed. Within the peace movement, the introduction of peace studies is seen as a hopeful sign. Ron Smith says awakening a desire for peace in children is a first step, and he says there's evidence that opposition to nuclear arms is getting stronger. So far, it looks that. Uh nuclear destruction of mankind is inexorably approaching and uh, one would think is inevitable. Um, However, uh, tremendous movement of peoples across the world uh, against nuclear threat uh, is developing and growing and one would hope that people, mankind, can can wake up to this threat in time and prevent a nuclear war. But I must say the development of Star Wars in America, the many billions of dollars being spent, the submarine uh, developments, the refinement of uh, missiles and missile accuracy, uh, all of this so far has not been halted and it's leading inexorably to nuclear destruction of mankind. And Ron Smith hopes Anzac Day will take on a new meaning. I think we need to learn the lessons of war in a different manner uh, than through the jingoism and militarism that's associated with Anzac Day. And uh, I would hope that that we would have a a peace day rather than a war day as a national holiday. Anzac Day, to me, is a day when my main thoughts are of remembrance, thankfulness and hope. Anzac Day is the focus of the Return Services Association. They're the ones who pushed for its creation and the ones who keep it going. But as fewer and fewer servicemen are around to go on parade, 
there's also a danger that it might die a natural death. RSA spokesman Don Quigley disagrees. I don't think for one moment that it's going to die out. It's certainly not just for uh, the benefit of war veterans. Certainly they will gather on Anzac Day and share some common memories about people that did not return home with them. But Anzac Day to us is more than that. It's a question of remembering why they went and to try and impress upon other people uh, that this should not happen again. The theme behind it is something that we, uh, we try to bring before the people and government in particular at any occasion. Some people would say that um, Anzac Day is, is just a commemoration of, of war and, um, and would even say that perhaps in its attempt to glorify war or, or the sacrifices. Do you feel that this is so? No, it's quite the opposite. Um, the theme in Anzac Day that appears on most memorials are the simple words, lest we forget. And it, it's to remember at all times that mistakes were made in the past People died because of those mistakes and we should all try and make sure it doesn't happen again. So how far would the RSA go towards supporting the peace movement? Well, the RSA, of course, is the largest peace group in the country. Um, We've been along that particular road uh, of war. We don't want to go again. We don't want our children or our grandchildren to have to follow that particular path either. So we are pacifists. Where we differ from other groups is the way that we're going to achieve peace. Uh, We feel that merely protesting is negative, it achieves nothing. We feel that more positive action must be taken to ensure that peace is protected. Peace is not something that is ours by right. It's something that we have to work for and preserve once we have it. And this is where we feel that the RSA has a role to play in reminding people of these responsibilities. And Ron Quigley says he's been noticing a resurgence of interest in Anzac Day. For the past uh, three or four years, particularly um, from my own personal observations and from the comments that come back to me after each Anzac Day, uh, the increasing number of non-services people, uh, ordinary civilians attending uh, commemoration services, particularly among the younger people, younger children. Why do you think that is? Well... Possibly it is because that more people now are aware of the world tension and world crisis. Uh, This is one, I suppose, one of the things one can attribute to uh, peace protest movements that make sure everybody is aware that there are issues at stake and people then start to to remember and, and make a point of joining with others on that one particular day. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Defence is reporting a surge of interest in military history. Army Education Officer Captain Gary Clayton says it's attracting a lot of research. You have the University of Victoria, several people who have done or are doing theses on military subjects at the University of Waikato likewise. Uh, You're now having a professional group of military historians set up, which was set up at the last New Zealand Historical Association conference at Massey University. So increasingly academics are becoming interested in it and also the general public are becoming interested in military history per se. And in some ways it's probably due to the length of time of peace. It's, uh, war is not an immediate thing. 
or military military experience is not immediate to people, and so they're now studying it to try and understand it or come to terms with it themselves. And also we're having a situation where two or three generations away from the conflict and people realise that their fathers, grandfathers or great-grandfathers are involved. And it's in part, of, in part and parcel of the resurgence of things like genealogical study. People are interested in their forebears. They want to know what they did and this is part of that learning process of what their people have done in the past. National Archives too report a record level of interest in the subject although Director Ray Grover says for a long time it was ignored. Immediately after the Second World War, interest in military history in New Zealand was largely confined to people who had actually been um, soldiers themselves, either in the Second World War, the First World War, or, in one or two cases, had actually fought in both wars. And then, after that, round about in the 1950s, it seemed to become the preserve of members of organisations like the um, Returned um, Services Association. And rightly or wrongly, at that time, military history tended to become identified with a fairly narrow right-wing um, um, attitude uh, to the uh, degree that people who were interested in um, history for its own sake were um, turned off by it. They didn't want to become identified with what appeared to be a very narrow militaristic point of view. It was felt that if you if you um, kind of studied military history that you were the sort of person who thought that war had um, a, a kind of positive um, uh, uh, features in fact an interest in military history was often identified as perhaps a revelation of, of um, latent um, fascism in the person concerned The director of the Turnbull Library Jim Trowey says people's attitudes towards keeping records of war have changed dramatically What I have noticed is that uh, certainly for the First World War and for the Second World War, uh, as a nation we thought we owed it to the boys, to the boys who'd made the sacrifices to keep the records. We didn't do it particularly well in the First World War. Uh, we, in fact, only uh, started to move once we noticed the Australians were moving. So we were less than perfect during the First World War, but it was quite clear that uh, soon after the outbreak of the Second World War, people realised that something had to be done and initiatives were taken within the Department of Internal Affairs and a proper war history unit was set up and the appropriate records were created on the spot so that at the end of the war everything was ready for the history to be written. But again, it was the nation's way of showing its obligations to those who had fought in the war. It was a matter of social and moral obligation to people. Now I think the attitude is quite different. Uh, historians are showing an increased interest 
in war history, not out of duty to the boys at all, because they believe they can see a pattern in our past. If you look at New Zealand's history, there it is, punctuated regularly by major bouts of warfare. We've spent a great deal of our time as a nation fighting, either fighting in New Zealand or fighting overseas. Now, that's a pattern. Historians can recognise a pattern. And the kind of questions they're asking are, is there something here in the experience of war, the way it shaped New Zealand society, that can help us to understand New Zealand society? So they're now looking as social historians at the experience of war because it's such a significant part of our New Zealand experience. Nicholas Boyk is a fellow at the Start Research Centre, Victoria University, who's working on the letters and diaries of World War I soldiers. He's found a change in interpretation of military history that reflects this country's loosening of ties with Britain. The point which um, shows quite clearly in the diaries and in the letters is that um, the, the nas- New Zealand nationalism, which was uh, supposedly born at Gallipoli, focused from the changed attitudes of the soldiers towards the Australians and the English. Before the Gallipoli campaign, the New Zealanders had uh, had a vision of themselves as upholding the empire and England and saw New Zealand as a, a little England and they had ideas about the white man's burden and that kind of thing. When they got to Gallipoli and the fighting began, they quickly changed their attitudes about the English because they viewed the English as incompetence. Um, The main reason for that being the whole campaign which was organised by the British was an utter military disaster. And the, the people who came out of it with some credit as far as the New Zealanders were concerned were the English, uh, were, sorry, the Australians. And the reason for that, basically, is that um, in Egypt, where the New Zealanders had been camped for five months, the New Zealanders had tried to keep well away from the Australians as they viewed them as sort of wild colonial boys who went around um, whoring and uh, drinking and the like. And that didn't fit the image the New Zealanders wanted to create with the English. However, at Gallipoli, the thing that really shows up in the diaries and letters was the way that the Australians fought, that although they were somewhat disorganised and not not upholding to standard military discipline, their performance, especially on the landing day on April 25, was uh, very heroic and showed great bravery, while the English, according to the New Zealanders, showed nothing but uh, military disorganisation and a marked degree of cowardice. And... Um, this discouraged the New Zealanders to a great extent. And that's really where uh, nationalism emerged at Gallipoli. Um, now, in the official histories, which were written after the war, that doesn't really come across at all. The, uh, the official histories just go on and on about what a great campaign it was and how well the New Zealanders did and this kind of thing. But in some other books uh, written by the soldiers themselves, this changed attitude towards the Australians and the English does show up. Um, However, it's not really a point that's been focused on to a great extent, although Christopher Pugsley in his recent book on Gallipoli did touch on it. Nicholas Boyk has also discovered a growth of interest in the First World War. There's been a resurgence in interest in the New Zealand wars and in subsequent um, times New Zealand has tended to uh, follow Australia and in Australian history... Uh, the First World War and the Second World War has become major historical subjects. 
and there's been a follow-on in New Zealand. However, I, I tend to think that the main reason of this increased interest in the First World War is um, simply the fact that New Zealand is no longer so closely tied to England. People are looking for um, new, cause, new causes of nationalism and new uh, an identity to focus upon. Um, England is pulled out of the EEC and I think that um, this, this search for a new identity is focused on a number of areas, one of them being the First World War. And as New Zealanders come to terms with their own identity, the future of Anzac Day continues to come under scrutiny. We have very few rituals in New Zealand, and I think that um, the rituals of Anzac Day should not be forgotten, really for, for two reasons. One, because I think that people should actually be made continually aware of the devastation, the loss of life, that um, New Zealand's involvement in two major wars in the century has brought about. And I think that every so often you know, we should confront that experience and be forced to think about it. And secondly, because I think that one can use the day as a way of making a kind of commitment to uh, a world in which there will be no war, I think one could well imagine our Anzac days taking new kinds of form. Um, in which uh, instead of simply a retired um, army officer talking about um, you know how great it was with his mates in the in the desert, we would have people um, uh, talking seriously about the prospects of peace in the world today, and when one could have different kinds of rituals, you know, different groups coming in. Um, you know, really involving the community, involving children far more, it seems to me, um, and making it in that sense a kind of national day of commitment to um, preventing war in the future. Are there any moves to see this underway? Oh, yes, it's certainly uh, uh, two or three years ago there was a peace festival held on Anzac Day in Wellington, in which, um, which occurred you know, around the, uh, uh, the cenotaph, just outside Parliament there, and the, you know, the, the, the wreaths that are being laid express a desire on people's part to you know, make a different kind of point about Anzac Day. I mean, in my view, you know, the day is really up for grabs. I mean, it's a, it's a day that um, can only really be taken in a number of directions. If it's not taken in the direction of a commitment to peace, I think it will die out. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.